We are in a series. This is the last week of the series. It's called Jesus Walks. It's been our uh, Lenten series. And Lent is a time leading up to Easter, a 40-day period in which we take time to think about our humanity, our mortality, our frailty. And oftentimes, Lent's accompanied by a type of fasting, a fasting from uh, maybe meat or alcohol or chocolate or things like that. And we've said all along that this year, we are hoping um, to acknowledge all the things we've already all been fasting from this past year, and instead focus just on this message that Jesus was bringing as he proclaimed the kingdom of God throughout Jerusalem and the surrounding areas. And in this series, we have walked metaphorically behind Jesus seeing what this message sounded like and what it looked like um, as he walked through the streets only about 200 miles from where he was born. And this morning, we're concluding this series with Palm Sunday. It's a famous moment in scriptures and in history where Jesus rides in on a donkey uh, and he's proclaimed as king. And this morning, the title of the sermon, the title of the message is called Displacing Toxic Success. Displacing Toxic Success. Because I think what we get here is a picture of what does it mean as someone who wants to follow Jesus, but really as just even a person who wants to be part of the global community of other human beings, what does it look like to address the allure of success and the false sense of security that it can bring to us. So I want to start this message with a question, and and that question is, what will you do to achieve success? What What are you willing to do to make sure you achieve your goals? What What are you willing to sacrifice? What relationships, what time, what energy, what truth are you willing to? You see, will you do whatever it takes to be successful is a type of phrase that we've lived with in uh, our culture for a long, long time. And it's not just in our culture that this exists, but it's something in the human heart where we prop up things in our mind that we believe if we can achieve or attain this relationship, this job, this prestige, this reputation, this level of wealth, that we'll be safe, that we'll be secure, that we will be somebody, that we will mean something in this world. And as Jesus comes into the city of Jerusalem on a colt, he knows this about the human heart. And he feels the draw and the pull of it himself, no doubt. But what he also knows is that this is a game that's rigged. And it's really a house of cards. And as we look at these scriptures, he shows us what it means to get something better than success. So, uh, let's take a look at these scriptures here, starting in the first couple of verses, and see how he does this. 
Verse 1 says, As they approached Jerusalem and came to Bethphage and Bethany at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples, saying to them, Go to the village ahead of you, and just as you enter it, you will find a colt tied there, which no one has ever ridden. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you why you're doing this, say, The Lord needs it, and we'll send it back here shortly. The first thing I want to make clear about this passage here, uh, so first of all, let's get over the fact that uh, we can't, none of us can relate to borrowing a donkey, right? None of us have ever done that before. The closest thing is maybe a rental car, right? Or, or borrowing a friend's car uh, when ours breaks down or something like that. So that's the first thing. Second thing is Jesus here is actually doing something that many of us have been taught through religion is not something that we should do if we have humility, which is exercising our authority and our power. You see, this, this isn't a message about how you're not supposed to exercise your, your God-given or your skill-based authority or strength in the world to do what you need to do, to accomplish goals. I'm not talking about that. I'm not saying you shouldn't do that. Jesus is clearly stating who he is and what he is about, and he's also asking people for things to make that clear. You see, he's not just borrowing a donkey because that's his preferred mode of transportation or because that's sort of the easiest thing. He's actually going out of his way. The series is called Jesus Walks. So he's going out of his way to ride a donkey into a certain area to proclaim a certain type of message about who he is. So this wouldn't fit right now where we are in the narrative in our sort of working definition of humility, because the, the sort of working definition of humility would say uh, we're supposed to kind of um, uh, uh, avoid taking credit for or being very assertive and direct about the things that we're trying to do and accomplish, and that we're sort of supposed to sort of move apologetically through life about what we want and who we are. And that's not the case at all with the type of humility we see in Jesus Christ. And here, with the cult, he's referring to a passage in Scripture, a famous one, one that all of the Jewish people who were around in this crowd would have been greatly familiar with. It comes from Zechariah 9, verse, uh, chapter 9, verse 9. It says this, Rejoice greatly, daughter Zion. Shout, daughter Jerusalem. See, your king comes to you righteous and victorious, lowly and riding on a donkey, on a colt the fowl of a donkey. So the first thing we see here is that Jesus is going out of his way to show that he is this king, that he's the guy, like he's the dude that we're looking for, and he wants you to know that. He's not waiting at this point for anybody to figure it out. Have you ever had a moment where you were in a position, maybe it was at work, maybe it was in family life, maybe uh, it was in school, and you did something, and it just kind of came out of you, and you just knew you had the authority and the power to do that, that it was the right thing for you to do at the right time. I bet if you search your mind hard enough, you can find a moment 
where that is true of you. So I don't want you to get it twisted. I don't want you to get it mixed up this morning about what I'm trying to say. There's a difference between having an inner authority that comes ultimately from God, but also through your own experiences, your own skills that we are to exercise. But there is a way that that can get twisted into avoiding something, into avoiding the risk of living life, and it becomes toxic. The success becomes toxic. So first here, we see Jesus embracing his power and his authority. The second thing we see is that Jesus is broke. He's broke. He's got to borrow a donkey to ride on. And, and, and as we look, we see he's got to borrow a lot of other things. He had to borrow a stable to be born in. He had to borrow houses to sleep in. He had to borrow money to provide for his ministry. He had to borrow the cloaks that they put down on the donkey for him to not have to ride on the back of the donkey. He had to borrow a tomb to be buried in. That Jesus was broke. It didn't, he didn't look or smell like success. And here's where we start to see the turn of the coin here, that in the same moment that we see Jesus exercising his authority and his power so clearly, both symbolically and literally, with the riding of the donkey into Jerusalem, we also see that he's needy. Isn't that interesting? Because usually what we're taught, and even oftentimes what we're guilty of thinking is that if we have power and authority, that we won't be needy, that we won't be weak, that we won't have to ask things of other people for us to make it through life. I see this present all the time with my oldest son, Benjamin. He's seven years old. And, and we'll be talking about like running or exercising or like his schoolwork or playing Mario or something. And he'll say something like, well, dad, but one day I'll be the fastest, right? And I'll say, eh, no, probably not. He, he's a big dude. He takes after my, my wife's uh, brother, who's 6'5", and obviously I'm not 6'5". Um, and he's already up to, up to here on me. And I'm like, yeah, probably not going to be the fastest. You're going to be good at lots of things, though. But guess what, Benjamin? There's always going to be somebody better than you at these things. And you're always going to want to be a little bit better or a little bit stronger in some areas. But there's this pull and this temptation in our heart, again, to hope that one day, if we can get to a certain point, if we can amass the right amount of ingredients, of intelligence, of good looks, of the, the house in this certain kind of neighborhood or this promotion at this career, that at some point we won't be weak and needy anymore. And yet here we see the Messiah coming in confidently saying, look, I'm riding this donkey into Jerusalem at this time of year to say I'm the dude, like I'm that guy, I'm the king, I'm the one who's going to rule over everything and make things right but I got to borrow my ride to get there. And, and, and you know what's really funny is at, at the end of these couple of verses, uh, in verse 3, 
he's talking to the disciples. He says, if anyone asks you, why are you doing this? Say, the Lord needs it. That's the authority part. And then the second part, and we'll send it right back here shortly. It's like, I'm going to bring it right back. <laughs> he's not even going to keep the donkey, even though he's king of the universe and invented donkeys, right? Maybe just for this very moment. I mean, why else do donkeys exist? I don't know, because I didn't grow up in an agrarian culture, right? So sue me, okay? So I don't know about that. <laughs> I, I think about... Uh, I think about the time, I think about this one instance where I loaned a guy a tool. And uh, I loaned him a drill. And I didn't, I didn't really like this guy that much either. And I didn't have a lot of interaction with him normally. And yet he, he, he wanted to borrow my drill. And it was a nice drill. It was a Hitachi drill. It was a plug-in drill. It was super strong. And I said, I couldn't help myself. This was probably... 15 years ago, but it's, it's crystal clear in my mind. Hey, just make sure you bring it, bring it back, you know, in good condition. And I, I remember him saying, well, of course I'm going to do that, Jamie. Why do you think I wouldn't do that? Why do you think I would bring the drill back the way you gave it to me? And I'm thinking, well, anybody who doesn't own a drill for themselves maybe doesn't know how to take care of a drill properly. <laughs> That's what I'm thinking. And I'm also thinking of... Johnny Pineda, when he borrowed my orbital sander and ruined it in one use, right? If you're listening, Johnny, I forgive you and I love you, but you've ruined my sander, bro. There's this, this inherent amount of risk involved in living and admitting our neediness. So while we each have these areas that are given to us by God to exercise our authority. And maybe you haven't stepped into that yet, much yet in your life, but it's there for you. But there's also an aspect to this when we live into it in a healthy way that also results in neediness. So um, here's the thing. Here's the thing that this simple this simple idea of borrowing the cult, I think that it lends itself to, that reminds us of in the life of Jesus, is this idea of, I've, I've hinted around at it, but this idea of vulnerability in reaching our goals and accessing our authority and our power, this idea that the ends don't justify the means. So, it would be so easy for Jesus to say, hey, and tell him the Lord needs your cult, and you should be happy for that, right? You should be happy that God's using your cult, and you don't get it back, and because it's serving this higher purpose. And it sort of lends itself to this sort of thinking that's already present here of this idea of the ends don't justify the means with success. You see, the, the bigger context here of Jesus coming in, in, in into Jerusalem in this way is he's coming in approved by the people, and he's, it's almost like he's doing it in the faces of the other religious leaders, the other kings, the other folks who have taken every shortcut in the books. They've done all the things to look good appearance-wise, and he's saying, look, I'm doing this the correct way, the proper way, 
I'm not doing it. I'm not taking shortcuts. These people approve of me. All I'm doing is rolling into town. I'm not threatening them with laws or rules or guilt or the sword or any of these types of things. I'm coming in just like a leader, a true leader does, which is I'm already being acknowledged by the people just because of my leadership. I'm doing it in a vulnerable way. I'm not, I don't have anything, if this goes south, to threaten people or to keep them in line or to keep them trusting me um, if, if they decide not to anymore. So this is a vulnerable way to live, this idea of living with your power and authority, but also your neediness and your weakness, two sides of the same coin. And this idea, this word, this concept, vulnerable, I want to give you a, a little, very small amount of etymology on this word. It's a Latin word, and uh, the original Latin was, was uh, pronounced <laughs> uh, vulnerabilis, and it basically meant uh, wounding or able to be wounded. So, of course, this is something in general we would think we want to avoid. We want to avoid having vulnerabilities because that means that we could be wounded. And this is the type of leadership that is scared as they see Jesus coming into Jerusalem because he is a leader who has wept with the people, who has walked with the people, who has asked them for food, who's asked them for a ride, asked them for clothing, asked them for shelter. It's an amazing paradox to them and to us today to see that these two powerful forces could exist together. So the thing about invulnerability, the inability to be harmed, is if you can't let things in, you also can't let much out. Again, two sides of the same coin. These toxic ideas of success that we have, these shortcuts in life, that's what they're pointing us to, a desire to be invulnerable, to take the risk out of life, to not be able to be harmed or hurt anymore. Helps us to feel safe and in control of our life. This is not going to work, and it doesn't work for anyone at any time. Uh, this uh, counselor and writer, uh, is a, he has a, a Christian counseling ministry. He talks about um, the cost of, of this risky way of living vulnerably, vulnerably. And he says this, We live in a culture where the acknowledgement of wrong or the ownership of risk and failure is paramount, meaning the same, to forfeiting the game forfeiting the game. This is the pressure. I don't know if you've ever felt this pressure before where you just didn't feel like you could admit that you were wrong, that you were weak, that you needed help, that you didn't know what to do next. And again and again, we see that Jesus, the Messiah, is willing to do this. 
And in this quote, Dan Allender says that when, if and when you do this in our culture, it's like you're forfeiting the game. What's the game? The game is that you can have it all together at some point, that you can be without weakness, without neediness, without interdependence, the needing of other people. This is the idea of toxic success. And once you've mounted up all the half-truths around you to protect you, you find yourself completely alone. You find yourself very successful at having no deep and significant relationships left in your life. We do it because we're afraid. Physically, we're afraid of harm. We're afraid that our purpose is tied to some type of status or reputation of what other people think about us. And we're afraid that we'll be condemned for the things that we don't achieve, for the type of car we drive, for the type level of education that we've gotten, by the attractiveness of ourselves or our spouses or, what, or whomever. So here's what we have to know that we're meant to walk after Jesus. And that that means living a life of vulnerability. What do you want to be able to get in to you? You have to be willing to expose yourself for the risk of harm, the risk of exercising your God-given authority, rights, and skills, even though it's risky even though you can and you will fail. And know that when you choose not to cover it up, people will judge you. See, here's what Jesus knew about this crowd, that, that right now, while they were worshiping him and praising him, that on a dime, they would turn against him. And so his authority and his mindset to do what he knew what was right had to be coming from somewhere else than pleasing the people around him, living a life of incredible vulnerability. In verse 4 it says, They went and found the colt outside in the street, tied at a doorway. As they untied it, some people standing there asked, What are you doing untying that colt? They answered, as Jesus had told them to, and the people let them go. When they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their cloaks over it, he sat on it. Many people spread their cloaks on the road while others spread branches they had cut in the fields. Those who went ahead and those who followed shouted, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest heavens. So Jesus has now been publicly identified as the Savior to come. But now he's in a really precarious place because with this title comes a bunch of assumptions about what he will do and what he'll be like. Have you ever been in that situation before where you got to a certain point in your life and people started to recognize you in a certain way? Maybe there was, uh, maybe there was a title in front of your name that there wasn't before. Maybe there was a relationship status in front of your name that there wasn't before. Maybe there were children there that weren't there before. It could be any number of things. And all of a sudden, 
your joy turned to dread as you realized now the people around me expect things of me that I don't think I am, that I don't think I can live up to. And then you decided, you started to make choices about what you would do, whether you would begin to try to uh, embody that on a surface level to, to, to appear to be those things that now people expected of you? Or would you take the path of vulnerability, of just saying, yeah, here's where, I am, here's where I'm at, here's what I can do, and here's what I can't do? I remember working construction uh, in college, and I can remember... Um, being asked if I could use a circular saw, if I knew how to use the these circular skill saw. And I was like, yeah, of course I know how to do that. I'd never use a circular saw a day in my life. <laughs> That's just a f small, funny example of what happens to us in life all the time, where we immediately begin to lie or tell half-truths because we're so frightened about just saying, I don't know how to do it. Or even though you thought this of me, I really can't do this thing. I really don't know how to do it. And that became apparent really quick as soon as I started cutting the first board that my boss gave me to cut. So Jesus is in this precarious situation. And uh, what we can learn from this is this idea right here. That when you care so much about what people think about you, you lose the ability to be honest with both them and yourself. When you care so much about what people think about you, you lose the ability to be honest with them and yourself. What are you losing the ability to be honest with them about? Things that are important. Things that are right. Things that you know are um, thing, injustices that you know are taking place. You start to lose your inner authority to do that. You start to get confused about who you are and what makes you who you are. But here's what I want to say about this. I've talked, I've talked a whole lot about this problem of toxic success and not a lot about the antidote. The reason why... Jesus was being praised as the Messiah of his people as he came into Jerusalem was not because of titles. It wasn't because he had achieved some certain level of uh, carpentry success. He was a carpenter, right? Or because he was uh, promoted to the Sanhedrin, the highest order, religious order of the day, or said he was going to usurp King Herod or the Roman emperor uh, with an army. None of those things were true. The reason why the people believed he was who he said he was was because he lived by the deep conviction that God was pleased with him. And the same the same thing is true for us. That's our, that's our antidote to this. That Jesus is coming in, he's being recognized as the Savior and the Messiah because the people know this. They know that Jesus cared for them and loved them and met them exactly where they were. They didn't have to change. All they had to do was get to him. They just had to get to where he was 
And Jesus was there to meet them, to see them, to meet their needs. And Jesus is that for you and me. He's, he's there for us. He's there to see us, to remind us of the gifts that we've been given, the inner authority that we have to contribute to the kingdom of God. When we open ourselves up to that vulnerable and risky idea, we get to participate more and more in a bigger view of the world. Instead of closing ourselves off and building more and more walls between us and other people and real relationship, us and God, even ourselves, we even isolate us from ourselves when we do this. When we begin to open it up and say, I'm willing to live a life of risk. You see, so often talking about a life of faith is described as something other than a life of risk. But what do you need faith for if you're not living a risky life? You don't. You don't need it. The exact amount that you are willing to step out into your power and to the authority God has given you and the risk and the vulnerability that comes with that, humbly accepting you have things to offer, and it's not everything, but it's something the more faith you need. I've seen this true in my own life where I'll have these moments in, in uh, a lot of it has been related to uh, jobs and careers and things like that. I'll have these moments where there is an opportunity for me to choose whether I will reinforce my own uh, stuff, my own reputation, my own things that I have to offer, or, uh, or let somebody else share the spotlight or share the resources or uh, share potential employment opportunities. And here's what I've found. That in my mind, for a moment, there's a flicker of retreat, of wanting to hold it all in, but then something else comes Right after that, it's an overflow of gratitude out of my heart that I've noticed that as I've lived a more and more vulnerable life, that flicker of retreat into self has lasted less and less time when these moments come up in my life, where I'm able to then share openly and widely with what I have. And instead of finding that I've run out, I find more. It happens over and over. It's, it's amazing to me how this keeps happening. The only way that I can describe it is the kingdom of God, is that there is actually something truer about this reality than what's on the surface. And the only way to find it is with risk and faith. What we see Jesus doing here. In the end of this passage, in verse 11, it says, Jesus entered Jerusalem, and he went into the temple courts. He looked around at everything, but since it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. So Jesus comes through. He rides through. The crowds are screaming, Jesus, Messiah, Hosanna, son of David, 
all the biggest titles he could possibly have been given. And then he gets to the temple in Jerusalem, the place of, of the religious authority and structure. And he goes in there, and he looks around at everything. It's dusk. It's getting, it's getting late. And as Jesus is there, I think he was faced in some sense with one of these decisions. I think the human part of him, the human part of him that was risk avoidant, the insurance company side of him, goes into the temple and sees what he could inherit, that he could get this power. He could be locked in and closed in. And that maybe this is what's best for the people, for him to just take over this thing and rule it more benevolently, more kindly and justly than the people before him. But I think that lasted for only a flicker in him. Because the second thing that came up within him is I'm going to tear this whole thing down. I'm going to build something better within the human heart. Because that's what he did the next day. He went and he started tearing up that temple. And he prophesied before and after that this temple would literally be torn down and that he himself represented the new temple, that he was the new bridge between God and man. See, Jesus was okay to receive praise for who he was. But the praise from the people didn't define whether that was true of him or not. Here's what happens. If we become so attached to the things that give us praise, that tell us we're worth something, that tell us we're safe, if we become so attached to those things, we can no longer criticize them. Injustice gets to have its way. Jesus knew that to be true. That's what happens in our world all the time. We become so attached to the symbols of power and security, no matter what they may be, we can no longer call out the wickedness and the evil that we see because it feels like we're calling ourselves out. This is what invulnerability will get you. Jesus already had to borrow a donkey just to get there. He had to sit on other people's jackets he had to stay in somebody else's house. He already knew what it meant to live vulnerably, and he knew the risk involved with it. So when he got into that temple and he looked around, he didn't have some crisis. He said, yeah, I know what I'm about to do in here. I'm about to tear it down. So when you live a life like this, when you live a life of vulnerability, you can embrace your power your authority that God's given you. You can take criticism and you can tear down the things that need to be teared down so that people can live in relationship with God and one another. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for this morning. Thank you for the gratitude that I feel to be in this room with other people, for the beautiful weather, for a chance to live one more day. 
to receive and to give to others. Would you bless this time as we come to the table, the communion table, would you speak to our hearts? And would you, as we receive these elements, would you fill us with courage and love from you? Amen.